want to stand. We're going to read the passage from this morning. It's Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you and all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether I'm in chains or defending or confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Morning, everybody. Hey, as we get into the book of Philippians, I want to invite you and encourage you. How many of you own an actual leather and paper Bible? Just out of curiosity. Look at all these hands. Look around. Everybody has a Bible. Let's go old school through the book of Philippians. This is just kind of like my, I don't know what it is, but there's something about having like a, a leather Bible on your lap and you can like open it up and you can underline it and there's something about slowing down and just having something tactile. I want to encourage us as we go through the book of Philippians, try to bring your leather page Bibles, your like paper Bibles, have them open on your laps because literally as we go through this book, we're going back to old school Bible teaching. We're going to look at every verse, we're going to chew on every word, and then we're going to make applications. And you'll be able to, as the Spirit communes with you through the sermon and through the scripture itself, you will be able to actually have a conversation with your father as the book is open on your lap. You know, we have... Throughout history, Christians have been called people of the book, but we are now people of the phone. <laughs> and I want us to try to resist that just a little bit as we go through the book of Philippians. People of the book. Are we all in on that? Cool. Happy Mother's Day here on this brisk Sunday morning in San Diego. May Gray. May Gray. Father, we do thank you for weather of all type. Come sun, shine, or storm. Certainty or uncertainty. Pain or peace. You rule. You reign. You hold the homeless in your heart today. You reach out to the penthouse CEO. From Putin to the people of Ukraine. From Democrat to Republican, from straight, gay, black, white, Mexican, Asian, you reign and you love and you care and you want your people to flourish. You want this earth to flourish. You want us to find ourselves in your presence, unfolding your purposes for your glory. And so I pray for the 
the souls you've gathered here this morning, that Philippians would be a turning point in each of our lives, this incredible letter, that it would be a milestone, a marker that we would look back upon and find ourselves saying that was a massive shift in my life. That was a transforming point. That was a season of radical change and restructuring and reconstruction of my faith that carried me through to the day when I was able to see you, my king, face to face, eye to eye, and hear you say, well done, faithful and chosen servant. And so today, may these faithful and chosen servants, slaves, saints of God, may they smile a little bit broader. May they skip in their step a little bit more lightly, no matter what circumstance they find themselves in. In Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, amen. So I was hanging out with a dear friend this past week here in the city, and he was sharing with me a moment of clarity that he recently had. He was preparing for a surf. He is a phenomenal surfer. And he was down at Point Loma, if you've ever been at that parking lot in front of the Point Loma campus, out at the cliffs, as they are so called. He was just looking out on a beautiful sunny day, and he found himself saying, wow, I have my dream job right now. He's this avid surfer, and he works for Firewire Surfboards, so he gets as many surfboards as he wants. (laughs) My wife, she just landed her dream job wow, she's going to be teaching at the school, doing exactly what she wants to be doing. Our marriage is phenomenal. I have this circle of friends that I just love. I have a church community that I'm enthralled with. I live in San Diego where it's 72 degrees, except for May, every single day. The sun is out. I'm heading out for a surf. And then he looked at me and he got really sober for a moment. He said, it's not enough. I have everything, and it's not enough. And then, like, literally, his eyes got glassy as he teared up. It doesn't matter, Dan. I am so hungry for Jesus. I am so hungry for the presence of God. Sunshine, surfing, sweet marriage, beautiful community, dream jobs, and I find myself starved for the presence of Jesus. I want Jesus, and that dear friends, is the mark of the Holy Spirit doing a deep and true work in the Christian community, in the wealthy, affluent, comfortable, sunshiny city of San Diego where we find ourselves seated this morning. And it is something that we collectively as a community are praying for in earnest, that the things of this world, the ways of this world, the standards of this world would no longer satisfy us, that we would no longer find ourselves at peace with what is, but that we would hunger for God's presence and for his purpose to literally be falling upon us and lived out in full. And as he answers these prayers, renewal will begin to sweep our souls, and happiness and contentment in the things of this world will just kind of crumble and fall apart, and we'll see them for the house of cards that they actually are as they completely fail, because the only thing that will satisfy every human on this planet is the presence of God himself. So for the next three months, we're going to be studying this beautiful letter, the letter of Philippians. And it is a letter that details what life in the kingdom of God looks like. It is filled with care and concern, instructions and corrections. Philippians was written by a man named Paul who actually found himself in prison under Roman authority, writing to a community of Jesus followers that he had planted about 10 years prior in the city of Philippi in the province of Macedonia, tucked away in the middle of the Roman Empire. 
And I hope that as week by week we attend to the details of this letter, our church, you and I together, will get a sense of our part now in this ongoing cosmic recreation project that is restructuring our values and our standards of happiness. I'm trusting that week by week, the space between heaven and earth in our souls and in our community and in our city will thin just a little bit more. And I am praying that we will be motivated that you and I will leave these Sunday mornings and attend to our community groups and be in our classrooms and in our workplaces motivated by the Spirit to live in this city with just a little more intentionality, a little more commitment, a lot more love, a ton more joy, and that this work would actually begin to span through the centuries as the Philippian community touches our hearts today, that a thousand generations from now, you would still be spanning the generations in your response to Jesus and his kingdom. So my invitation to us with paper Bibles on our laps week by week is for us to begin to lean in and to listen intently. And here's how we're going to work our way through the book of Philippians. Like I said, old school Bible teaching. We're going to start with these brief runs through the text itself. We're going to geek out on the technical Greek terms. We're going to build huge theology, and then we're going to walk away with some serious application for each week to consider in the midst of our communities, classrooms, workplaces, friends, family members, and even in the midst of our foes. You guys ready to jump in on this? Verse 1. It will be up on the screens for you, but please, paper Bibles next week. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. So Paul opens this letter with a traditional Greco-Roman introduction, and he calls himself and Timothy servants of Jesus Christ. Now, the translation here is wincing a little bit at the actual intensity of the Greek word. The Greek word is actually better translated slaves, doulos. Paul and Timothy, slaves of Jesus. And upwards of 10 to 20% of the Roman population were slaves. They were the lowest of all the peoples in the social hierarchy. And every reader would have raised an eyebrow at Paul's self-description, slave of Jesus. Now, Roman slavery, it was very different than the slavery of American history, from which we are all still reeling the effects of. But Roman slaves were nonetheless considered property of their masters. They did not have the same rights or the same dignity as Roman citizens. And so the tension that we feel around the term slaves is a very similar tension to what they would have felt in the first century. And Paul was creating that tension in the text intentionally. Right from the get-go, he was making it shockingly obvious that he was going to be operating in a categorically different way than the surrounding cultural influencers. Paul was not going to come in as a self-proclaimed, high and mighty, intellectual, educated authority to be bowed to and learned from. Paul considered himself Jesus's property. Now, being owned by another in any context, first century or 21st century, was seen as wholly negative. But in the upside-down, backwards, counterintuitive way of the kingdom of God, the one who is owned by Jesus is actually dignified and elevated to the highest place. It was this owned frame of mind that Paul was wanting to introduce the Philippian community to you. He wanted our hearts to know that we are owned because when we embrace our enslavement to Jesus, this is the means by which Jesus makes us holy. It is the way in which we actually become saints. 
And this is exactly what he called the Philippian church here in the introduction. He called the Philippians the holy ones, saints. Paul was addressing the whole family here, from the spiritual mothers and fathers, deacons and overseers, all the way to the newest converts. And he was reminding them and us that in Jesus, we have now been made pure and holy and righteous. And because Jesus purchased us, our king owns us. We now are set apart for his purposes. His purposes alone, that is the base definition of the word holy. Because of our enslavement to Jesus, because he owns us, we are set apart for his purposes, which means we are holy, which means we are called saints of God. His will is now our will. Jesus' purity is our purity. His righteousness is our righteousness. And then Paul goes on and he offers them, verse 2, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. That is a dense little combination of words. Grace is the, and this is my personal expanded definition of grace. Grace is the unmerited, undeserved, unearned overflow of God's goodness and his forgiveness and his lavish love poured out upon us apart from anything that we can do. Grace is what secures us and empowers us for God's purposes. Grace is what produces peace because we no longer have to strive or struggle or fear. Grace has covered us and gone before us so that we are now at peace. Having greeted the people of Philippi, Paul then launches into this overflow of gratitude and thanksgiving for the church. You guys, verses three through eight, if you had your Bibles there on your phones and you were looking, verses three through eight is literally in the Greek text, one long clunky run-on sentence. It's like Paul can't even take a breath. He is so grateful for the Philippian church. Verse three, having greeted them, I thank my God every time I remember you. Paul's relationship with the Philippians was actually received gratefully as a gift from God, and they, the Philippian church, had received Paul as a gift from God to them. They all viewed each other as a gift, one unto another. Can you imagine the relational vitality our church would have if we walked in here on Sunday morning and welcomed each other as gifts to each other. You a gift to me, I a gift to you, we a gift to each other. Each of us contributing our gift sets to bless and benefit and bring flourishing to the whole. This was Paul's run-on sentence overflow here. There was this reciprocal nature of ongoing support and love between the community and Paul. Paul had brought the good news of Jesus to them, offering them grace and peace through Jesus' cross. And they, the Philippians, had responded in faith and in obedience. This community would go on and support Paul financially, materially. They prayed for him in all of his endeavors, and they were continuing in their faithfulness in the city of Philippi to Jesus, even in Paul's absence. And so every time Paul leaned in to pray for the Philippian community, every time he thought of them, their faith and their partnership with him, he was just overwhelmed with gratitude. And friends, it is gratitude that is the fountainhead of joy. It is gratitude that is going to crush the head of the serpent in this city. It is when we begin to say thank you for everything that Satan flees tail tucked between his legs. Verse 4, in all my prayers for all of you, I pray with joy. Again, the English translation, if it was literal, would be so clunky, but Paul is highlighting something here. He's emphasizing something. 
And it is this. Literally, if, if, if I was to expand what's going on here with the way that Paul writes this sentence, it would sound like this. With joy, I always pray. All my prayers for all of you are always with joy. Each week, as we travel through Philippians, we're going to part the curtains on the work of the Spirit in Paul's soul, in the Philippian church's hearts, learning how in the midst of imprisonment and Roman oppression in terrible circumstances, we're told that the Philippians were actually impoverished people, low on the social hierarchy, we're going to learn, we're going to see how they remained joyful, how they were called to rejoice with gratitude. And in this particular instance, Paul listed three reasons for his joyful gratitude, participation, completion, and affection. These three are available to you and I this morning to produce gratitude and joy, participation, completion, and affection. Number one, participation. Verse five, as he prays, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul knew, despite his solitary confinement in a Roman prison, he knew that he was not alone in his missionary endeavors for Jesus. And so from the first time the gospel was heard and received to the present time of the reading of the letter in the first century, the Philippians had been partners with Paul in the work of the kingdom. And though they were separated by hundreds of miles, the Philippians were doing the work of Jesus right alongside Paul, even in his imprisonment. They were the only church, Paul tells us, that had freely offered him financial support throughout his travels and through his Roman imprisonment. And so their relationship was this ongoing mutual commitment. The whole community with Paul had committed to co-laboring and that co-laboring included spiritual things like prayer for one another, but also physical things like provision. And so when Paul looked forward to the future, he was grateful for what was this present partnership, but he was also grateful for what was to come. Completion, number two. Verse six, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Please note that in you is all in plural. The New Testament is not written to you. It's written to you all, us together. It's all in plural. Paul was probably writing, as I said, about a decade after he had planted the church in Philippi. And they were still going strong. And Paul, when he thought about the past and the present and the future, just overflowed with gratitude because he knew. He knew that what God had started in the community in Philippi, God would bring to completion. And so he was grateful for the present, and he was grateful for the future. Friends, this is going to be a key theme intertwined throughout the rest of the book of Philippians that really produces true joy. Christian gratitude, it is rooted in this present moment. So right now, here today, as an apprentice, as a follower of Jesus, you have grace and peace. You live in peace with God. We have each other. We're partnering with each other to fulfill God's purposes today here in San Diego. But Christian gratitude also is thankful in advance. We pay it forward, so to speak. It is forward-looking in its confidence to the faithfulness of God in unfolding his good works in and through us until the final day when Christ returns. And all of this partnership and all of this completion that provided this great fountainhead of gratitude for Paul, it unfolded in the context of real relationships that were deep and affectionate one for another. Number three, Paul's source of gratitude was affection. Affection. 
Verse 7, it's right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart. And whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. The Greco-Roman world, it was not so different from the modern world. Most relationships were transactional, and they were based on power dynamics and hierarchical structures, just like right here in the city of San Diego. The church, though, the church, the church was this community of relationships that were tethered together by something greater than just transaction or social affinity or climbing the hierarchical ladder. The great Manhattan church planter Tim Keller comments saying, when we come to the New Testament, there's a new layer added to our understanding of friendship. Friendship is only possible when there's a common vision and passion. Think of what that means for all Christians For believers in Christ, despite enormous differences in class, temperament, culture, race, sensibility, and personal history, there is an underlying commonality that is more powerful than them all. This is not so much a thread as an indestructible steel cable. The indestructible cable that tethered them together was made even more unique in these Christian communities in comparison to all the relationships in the Greco-Roman world because that steel cable was fueled, it was tethered by affection for one another. From the least of them who could offer nothing to the community to the greatest and the wealthiest of them who were there learning to be enslaved servants to the rest of the community, this affection just tethered them together, overflowing, and it was strange indeed in the eyes of Philippi and in the eyes of San Diego if we can pull this off in this generation. They loved one another with the whole of their beings. When Paul says, it's right for me to feel this way, we American kind of emotionally driven type folk, we think immediately about all the, all the feel goods that we get around people that we like and people that we love. Paul actually was using a pretty technical term here that had the, the, the better idea was that his frame of mind towards them, his focus, his way of thinking, his frame of mind was towards them and his heart, his heart. So he had a mind and a heart that was all the feels. When he thought about the Philippians, he was like, ah, oh, there's all the feels right there. I love them. But his mind was focused on them as well. And so Paul's heart, mind, body, and soul relationship with these people was an incredible source of joy. And then what tethered them together across economic and ethnic and age and social and gender barriers was Jesus. Their relationships existed because of Jesus. The way Jesus thought of the Philippians was how Paul thought of them and they of him. The way that Jesus felt in his being, in his heart about the Philippians is how Paul felt about them and they of him. The Spirit indwelt them with the same feelings and the same thoughts and the same focus as Jesus had, and it overflowed and tethered them together in this steel cable way. And he moved, it moved him towards gratitude and joy. And then Paul concludes this long run-on sentence with gratitude, telling them what he's so thankful for, and then he just leans into prayer. He just starts praying for them. Verses 9 through 11, another long run-on sentence. It's like Paul goes, and now it's time to pray. Verses 9 through 11. And this, verse 9, is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. And so the foundation of Paul's partnership with the Philippians was love. Now, It is so important for Christian communities to understand biblical definitions of love. When we think of love, yes, there are feelings in Twitter patient. 
Yes, there are signs of affection. Yes, there are mental choices that we make. Paul did all of that. But ultimately, love is defined by Jesus. And so when Paul prayed for their love to abound, he meant the love of Jesus, which was self-sacrificial and other-regarding in nature. Love defined by Jesus is a conscious decision to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of the other. And this is what Paul was praying would overflow in Philippi. This is what we're praying will overflow in the city of San Diego, a community of people consciously choosing to disadvantage ourselves by sacrificially serving each other in greater and greater measure. To do this, Paul knew that the community would need a knowledge of Jesus's love and insight into actually how to carry out Jesus's loving will in the world. And so what did he do? He didn't write a prospectus paper. He didn't write a strategy paper. Paul leaned in to pray. He knew that we could not love each other unless the Spirit of God made us aware of love, and he knew that we couldn't carry God's loving will into the world without prayer. And so he leans into prayer, and he asks for this knowledge of God's love and this depth of insight. Whenever we think of knowledge of God's love, we moderns, we Western moderns in particular, we think of ourselves as like brains in a jar. And so knowledge just equals data in our head, something we read in a book. John three sixteen. For God so loved me that he gave his only son for me. Now I know that God loves me in my head because the text tells me and I have the data in my head. But when the ancients were talking about knowledge, they were talking about knowledge as experiential. It was intellectual in your head and it was also something that you experienced. I know that God loves me because the text says he gave his son for me. And when I meditate on that and think through that, I experience this overflowing sense of his care, his concern, his lavish outpoured grace and peace in my soul. It's an experiential knowledge. And so Paul was praying for an embodied experiential knowing of Jesus' love in the Philippian community that went from head to heart to embodied reality. Without an experience of God's love, we will never love as Jesus loves. Head knowledge will never get us to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of each other. Only when we find ourselves finally saying, he purchased me and I am experiencing this sense of peace and security and love because he'll be faithful to complete what he's begun in me, can we say, I'll sacrifice for you. I'll let go of my time for you. I'll commit my emotional, my thought, my frame of mind. I will commit it to you because my king did that for me and I experienced that in my body and I want you to experience that in your body. Alexis and I have long said, and in that prayer that she wrote for the mamas this morning, she prayed it. The essence of Christianity is to know and experience ourselves as loved so that we might give our loved selves to the world. That's all, the, that's all we're doing. Sunday by Sunday, week by week in community, in the study of scripture, in prayer, in the practices, we are simply laboring to experientially know God's love in our bodies that we might give our loved bodies to this world as sacrifices just as Jesus did for us. And to do that, we need insight. We need depth of insight, Paul prayed for there in verse 9. In other words, even more clearly, we need depth of insight into God's will, not only God's will, but God's moral and ethical will. In other words, we need an experiential knowledge and wisdom. We need an awareness, 
You and I this week, more than ever in this generation, we need an awareness of how do we go do what God wants us to do in every single situation in which we find ourselves this week as loved bodies, as loved souls, as loved individuals, and as a loved community. Paul doubled down on this need for awareness of how to do what God wants us to do in the world in verse 10, praying this, that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus. The Philippians, just like us, lived in a socially, morally, relationally complex world. As badly as we want everything to be black and white, do this in this situation, say this in that situation, we all know that it's just this big gray washed mess in which we find ourselves saying, I don't know what to do right now. Do I say something? Do I not say something? Do I confront? Do I question? Do I run? Do I remain silent? What do I do? Most issues that the Philippians and you and I face are gray. And so what is right and wrong in our world is often blurred and distorted. And it is very difficult, friends, for us to know the right thing to do in any given situation. 80% of my pastoral counsel is sitting with Christians and them asking, what do I do in this work situation? What do I do in this family situation? How do I address the situation with my friend? How do, what do I say in this moment? To which I usually say, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And that's what Paul would say too. And that's why he leaned in in prayer. We need an experiential embodied wisdom of God's love so we are secure and at peace because of God's grace and his protection and the promise that he's going to complete every single thing that he has begun in us, in our classrooms and workplaces as well. And then we need to pray in every single given situation. Spirit of God, come, give me depth of insight to understand your moral will, your purpose, your guidance in this moment so that we can carry out this experiential wisdom and be able to discern what is best in every single moment in our family, workplace, neighborly situations, and to make the best decisions and to live in the best way possible for the sake of what? For the sake of purity until Jesus returns. That we would be a set-apart people, enslaved to Jesus, owned by his will. That we would be a people of holiness, true saints of God living out in the streets of San Diego. And all of this was for the sake of verse 11, as Paul concludes his prayer, being filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And so just as Jesus lived and died, was planted in the ground and raised to bear fruit in this world for salvation, we are little Christs. Do you guys realize that Christian is actually a derogatory term derived in the book of Acts? They were first called Christians in the book of Acts. It was a derogatory. It was, a, it was libel. It was, uh, it was, they were making fun of them. Oh, look at all the little Jesuses running around. Look at all the little Christs. Today we wear it as a title of honor, a title of dignity, enslaved to the great master. We go forth as little Christs, little Jesuses into this world. And Paul's prayer was that the fruits of Jesus' righteousness would saturate the Philippian church and our community. And then eventually this mustard seed, this leaven in the loaf of a city would just rise in the love of Jesus in these little hidden places on the margins. Resulting in what? Resulting in where all of creation is going to end. Every knee bowing and declaring that Jesus is Lord. We're just the beginnings of the end, friends. That's all we are. We are the beginnings of the end. A people group bowed to Jesus glorifying him, praising him for his wisdom, his love, his mercy, his forgiveness. 
So, in the final five or ten minutes that we have left here this morning, there's the text. There's Paul's thoughts, his gratitude, his prayer. What I'd like to do is give you a bold proposal to consider through the rest of this book, to take with you through this week, over the next three months, and maybe prayerfully through the rest of your life. I want to make a bold proposal for all of us to meditate on, pray through, and consider this week, through the rest of the book, and maybe for the rest of our lives. Here it is. These first 11 verses, the opening, the introduction, two run-on sentences in the book of Philippians. In these short 11 verses, literally three sentences in the Greek, Humanity is given absolutely everything it needs for, for, for perfect happiness and human flourishing. Everything. In, in, in a segment that's maybe three inches big on the page of my Bible, I have everything that I need for everlasting contentment, deep joy that is unwavering and unchanging, and human flourishing, what we're all longing for. Now, I told you, it's a, bold, it's a bold proposal. But I've been meditating in this book for probably, I don't know, three months now on almost a daily basis. And Philippians really is a handbook on human flourishing. It really is. And you guys know Neighbors is never going to be the church where it's like three steps to your humanly flourishing life. It, we recognize that the Bible and our lives are never three steps to that. Our Bibles and the lives that we live are just a mess. And Jesus in the midst of it and out of it comes human flourishing. But there is this unbelievable, repetitive theme of a promise of deep contentment and true happiness that all of us are longing for. And all of us are to give to this world as little Jesus is going out to disadvantage ourselves for the sake of our coworkers, friends, family members, and neighbors. Consider this. Now, I, I recognize in a room like this, a lot of us are unhappy in our situations right now because our situations are abysmal. They're hard. It's a broken world. There is much in this world that robs us of joy and peace and contentment. There's, it's a broken world. It's gnarly. Satan's no joke. His hatred and his destruction of humanity, it's no joke. There's much for us to look at in the world and say, that makes me sad. If we remove that layer and we get to the roots of some of our unhappiness, particularly as affluent Western Christians, a lot of our unhappiness is because we don't have what we want or what we think we want. And for some of us, and I think that this is maybe the greatest tragedy of American Christianity of all, we have everything we want, and we're still not happy. <laughs> we're content. We have sunshine. We can go surf. And we wake up in the morning discontent, sad, uncertain. Thinkers of all types throughout history have wrestled with the nature of human happiness and contentment and flourishing and how we all labor for it. So, for example, there are various philosophical schools throughout the history of human thought, who have proposed different ways of finally finding happiness and flourishing. Take, for example, the ancient philosophical school of you guys. Are you guys familiar with the Epicureans? Anybody familiar with the Epicureans and the Stoics? The Stoics are seeing kind of a resurgence in modern society. These two schools of philosophy on pursuit of happiness, they were polar opposites, Epicureans and Stoics. The Epicureans, they were the guys that said, hey, 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 it's a hard world, so what should we do? Eat, drink, and be merry. The Epicureans were the equivalent of like the modern foodie whose greatest happiness is like the next hot restaurant. By the way, did you guys see there's a new Thai kitchen opening up on 30th? Have any of you been there yet? Because I'm this guy, I'm the Epicurean. I'm like, look, life is rough, but if there's some good Thai street food, okay, 
I'm going to go stuff myself till I can't move and take a nap. The Stoics took a totally different approach to finding happiness and human flourishing. They were kind of take suffering head on type folk. Take it with a, a, a stiff upper lip. Just take it on the jaw. Look, life is broken, life is hard, and so the Stoics proposed you need emotional self-control and detachment. This is the way it is, so you need to just quit fighting it, and that will be your pathway to contentment and happiness. And it's interesting. We are seeing a resurgence of Stoic philosophy. There's this combination of like Eastern Buddhist mindfulness and Stoicism that seems to be prevailing in some of the workplaces of modern urban environments. We're just trying to cope. Humanity is just trying to cope. And so then today... If we move away from philosophical schools of happiness, we have our modern social media influencers with their beautiful lives and their curated threads and their quotable points of wisdom. And they are all training us that more followers and their lifestyle choices are the way to happiness. We have our politicians. They're constantly promising a better day under their policies. And so the list of how-tos on happiness and flourishing in human society, it is virtually endless. Now, if you take those thinkers and you compare them with Christian thinkers throughout our history. Christian thinkers in particular have had a very unique view on happiness and human flourishing. Maybe the greatest of all of them in our history was a man named St. Augustine. Augustine clearly, most clearly articulated that your desire for joy and contentment and peace, all of our longings for human flourishing, that's not wrong. That's not selfish. Augustine actually said, that's good and that is God-given. Augustine then said, the issue is because of the malady of sin, the sickness of sin, our desires are deformed and our desires now are disordered. It's as I said last week, our happiness picker is broken. Our philosophies are all incomplete. Our influencers, honestly, they're kind of faking it. And our politicians, enough said. Let's move on. <laughs> Spiritual writer Thomas Keating he identified three primary categories of need that must be met for each of us to have contentment and flourishing and peace. These three categories were power and control. We can call that purpose, mission, uh, uh, agency, the ability to carry meaning and in something into the world, power and control. We all need esteem and affection. Call this family a sense of identity, a sense of respect, a sense of validity, a sense of dignity. And Keating said we all need security and survival. These are the mechanisms of happiness for humanity. And in his insight, he recognized, not as a psychologist or psychiatrist, but just as a tender of the souls. He was a, a monk. He was a, a priest. Keating recognized that each of us, as we're growing up, because of sin, we experience pain and loss in all of these categories. Something goes terribly wrong in what we think will give peace and security, what we think will give esteem and affection, what we think will give power and control. Something goes terribly wrong and we experience a wound, loss, abuse, trauma, shame. And so we have these wounds in these various areas of needs. And so, because our happiness picker is broken, because our desires are disordered because of sin, to cope with our need, the need never goes away, but to cope with the loss or the wounding in that need, we then begin to mistakenly attach ourselves to people, places, and situations that we're certain will comfort us, even if they can't. And the reverse, we tend to now avoid people, places, and situations that we think will lead to discomfort, even if they're actually going to help us because of these wounds. It was these collections of disordered attachments and aversions that Keating called our emotional programs for happiness. 
We're all operating on a whole series of unconscious and conscious emotional programs for happiness. And so what we do now is in our brokenness, we give power and control to things that we shouldn't be controlled by. Or we avoid and rebel against things that we should give power to and control over us. And that, friends, is the source of our uncertainty and anxiety. I guarantee it. We pursue esteem and affection where it's not real. And we avoid forms because it's so vulnerable of real affection that are true. And that is the source of our loneliness and our loss of a sense of self. We trust in things, little green pieces of paper, that don't actually make us secure. And that's why we're so insecure all the time. So I'm just preaching to the choir here. This is I'm just Dan, 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 point one, point two, point three. Every single one of them. And so I just want to return us now to our bold, bold proposal. The first 11 verses of Philippians, these three sentences, gives us everything that we need for human flourishing. All of Keating's categories are satisfied in these first three sentences. Just by way of quick summary, and then we're going to move on to communion. Think about this. Everything that we see in these first three sentences, in this first introduction to Philippians, the burden of making something of our lives is relieved from us. Why? Because now we're just slaves. We're owned by Jesus. It's totally up to him what he makes of our lives. It's not up to us to justify our existence. And our identity doesn't need to be self-defined anymore. We are simply servants of a good and gracious king. Now we have this grand purpose, and we have meaning as we partner with one another. Meaning has been given to us. Purpose has been given to us as we work together in partnership through the kingdom of God. We now are invited into this community of relationships that are sacrificial and intimate, filled with this otherworldly love and affection, esteeming one another highly. And we have a secure and certain future brought about not by how much money we have in our bank account, but by the power of God. All of our failures are forgiven. There is no more shame for us. We are pure and blameless. And all of this, the foundational blocks of all this Paul teaches us is gratitude and prayer, thanksgiving and joy. Here's the rub. Can we believe this? Can we actually receive this? It was St. Ignatius who said, sin is our unwillingness to believe that God has our highest happiness in mind. The great battle for joy and peace is the battle to believe that the way Jesus affords us, the way Jesus takes us, leads to greater happiness than our self-made false programs of happiness could ever produce. Does that make sense? And we can't minimize this, friends. Listen, our fleshy programs for happiness are so convincing. I am absolutely certain that what I'm telling Jesus, if he would give it to me, would just give me the greatest delight. I'm utterly convinced of that. And so it's often the case that until those programs have failed us, the relationship fails, the work thing fails, it just falls apart, the money thing fails, we continue pursuing them. And in many Christians' case, including my own, we just keep pursuing false programs of happiness. We just stamp Jesus' name on it over and over and over in earnest prayer until it falls apart or we fall apart. But Jesus is working to redefine our source of happiness through this book. And this is not going to be a quick fix, friends. In a broken world with our deformed souls, we've run on these emotional programs our whole lives. We will spend the rest of our lives Jesus, letting Jesus untether our death grip on what we think will make us happy and rewire what true human flourishing is in our souls. He's deconstructing our preconceived and deformed ideas about joy, and he's going to reconstruct the joy of the kingdom of God. And because our Father loves us, and has our highest flourishing in his heart, maybe today he's letting stuff just fall apart, not as punishment, not because he's angry, not because you've messed up, not because you've missed his will, 
The gravel in your mouth is so that you might spit it out and experience living water flowing from your innermost being. The sense of loss is so that you might gain something greater than you could have ever imagined. It is beyond your imagination, which means that right now, whatever you're imagining is not what he's going to give to you for your source of happiness. He wants to give to you himself. You and I together in him, fully together as one. And our part, friends, as a church through Philippians is to press in, to pray, and to be intentional and committed. These points of rewiring of happiness, I'm just going to be very pastorally bold, but gentle. They only come through consistency, intentionality, and practice. A random once a month Sunday attendance and kind of a little bit of a commitment to a community group and an occasional brief glance at a scripture when I really need something to kind of prop up my emotional well-being for the day. You're never, there's too many forces forming you around false programs of happiness. We have to take responsibility. Good therapists, I've had some incredible therapists in my life and some of the best have been like, you need to take responsibility for your emotional maturity. We must take responsibility for our joy. We must take responsibility for our formation in the kingdom. We have to. It's an invitation to us, but we can't play games, friends. The church of the West can no longer play games, acting like this kind of random happenstance Christian practice that's once in a while because it's convenient and I've got time and I got good sleep last night, so it's all right for me to get up and go. No, this, is a, this man was writing from prison to a community of people that were suffering under great oppression. They were so radically committed. And if this invitation is for us, it will be received by this consistency, this intentionality, and this constant practice. It's when we begin to actually take risk. Friends, it's through long durations of committed time. Every time a community actually begins to get really close to experiencing real community, real affection, real relationships, conflict erupts, and the community breaks apart. This has happened to me over and over and over in my life. If we could just steadfastly stay just for another year and press in and find what it's like to find forgiveness, find those steel tethers that hold us together despite our differences, work through it, then there's this affection that grows out of it and there's a depth of relationship and there's a depth of joy. Is it hard? Oh my gosh, it feels impossible most of the time. Ugh, I've been doing this for so long and it's so hard not to just get frustrated because it feels impossible. What these texts teach us feels so impossible. Are there going to be many days where you, you find yourself saying, is this Christianity thing, this upside down way of the kingdom, this like I'm a slave of Jesus, I'm on the margins, I'm unseen, no recognition, I'm uncertain about money, I'm uncertain about the future. Is this really the way to joy? <laughs> many, 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 many days. Are there going to be many days where you find yourself with so many questions and just silence. So many days. Right in the middle of his run-on sentence, he can't even take a breath. He's so full of gratitude. He says, but I'm confident of this. He who began a good work in you all, in all of us together, you will never know the good work he's going to do in you unless you are doing it in the midst of a you alls. Can you just receive that this morning? The good work he wants to do in the midst of you all, Paul said, he's going to do it. This man was months from his head being chopped off. With joy. The most powerful empire on the planet. 
was telling these people to, to be silent, mocking, scorning, marginalizing with their strange and stringent sexual ethics and their care for one another and their, their wait, you're not using each other to get ahead in life. You actually are like trying to serve each other. And the Roman Empire was coming down on them like a ton of bricks. But with joy, with joy, with joy. I want to invite you as we come to communion this morning, I want to invite you to ask God to make this book a milestone in your life. I, I want you, the biblical image is an Ebenezer stone where you look at this, this spring season and you find yourself looking back on it 10 years from now where you're like, man, this book of Philippians, Paul, the Philippian church, this community that I was called into, I put a stake in the ground and I said, that's where I'm going to stake all of my life. And I'm going to go for this upside down, backwards. Everything seems to not be pointing towards joy, but it's going to lead to true joy. Make this book a milestone in your life that you can look back and say, major reconstruction happened there. Major. Deep reconstruction in my deepest being. And then we will commit week by week to pray Paul's prayer that God's love would abound, that each of us would not only know in our brains, but experience in our bodies the unfathomable heights, depths, lengths, and widths of God's love.